0: Hi, this is Peter Schiff. It is Saturday, February 4th, 2017. And yesterday we got the first jobs report of the year and the way Wall Street and uh, the media seems to be spinning it, it was a good report. It was good news because the headline number beat expectations. We created 227,000 jobs in January versus the 175,000 that had been expected. And of course, it was an improvement on the 157,000 jobs, which was a disappointing report in December. But once again, if you look beneath the headline number, you'll find that there's a lot more problems to this report than what the media is, is reporting. I mean, first of all, As always, the lion's share of these jobs are lower paying service sector jobs. Uh, They're in retail trade. They're in leisure and hospitality. So we're not creating the type of jobs that will make America great again. In fact, if you look at the higher paying jobs of manufacturing, mining, uh, logging, things like that, I mean, these jobs are barely adding any workers, if not losing workers. But the bigger story here has to do with what's happening to labor force participation, wages, and unemployment. The unemployment rate, the official U3 unemployment rate, went up from a 4.7 to 4.8. The more uh, revealing U6 number, which I think paints a more accurate picture of the true state of the labor market, that went up from 9.2% to 9.4%, and even Donald Trump, when he was campaigning, said that that number was far more accurate uh, than the official numbers that Obama would always want to tout. Now, why did the unemployment rate go up so much, at least uh, considering that we had 227,000 jobs created? And the reason was that we had over 700,000 workers re-enter the labor force. Now this goes against the trend that has dominated pretty much over the entirety of the Obama administration, where we saw a mass exodus of workers leaving the labor force. In fact, the labor force participation rate went up in January from 62.7 to 62.9. Now first of all, why did so many Americans decide to re-enter the labor force in January? Well, maybe there's two possible explanations for that, and maybe they're both accurate. One might have to do with all the optimism surrounding the Donald Trump presidents. Remember, Donald Trump campaigned that he was going to be the greatest jobs president that God had ever created. And it's possible that there are people who believe that this is going to happen. And so they want to reenter the uh, labor force to try to land. What are these great jobs uh, that President uh, bu- uh, 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 Trump is going to be delivering. So you have to enter the labor force in order to uh, apply for one of these jobs or look for one of these jobs. Another reason could be that the people who have been sitting out of labor force participation, maybe circumstances are finally catching up to them. Maybe they're running out of money. Whatever was sustaining them, maybe uh, they can't do it anymore. Maybe they've depleted their savings or they've used up all their credit. Maybe the cost of living has been rising to the point that they just have to by necessity. They need a job. They no longer have the luxury of not wanting one. And so you probably have more people coming into the labor force. Maybe some of the students are giving up on uh, going for a master's degree. Maybe they've realized that they're wasting a lot of time and money on higher education, and so maybe they're looking for jobs instead of another place uh, uh, to enroll for, 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 for study. So there are a lot of factors, I think, that could be driving more people into the labor force. Plus, the labor force participation rate is so low. At some point, you would expect a rise in the participation, trying to at least go back, uh, revert a, a bit to the mean. So what does this mean? If we're going to have a lot of people re-entering the labor force, two hundred and twenty seven thousand jobs is not a strong number i mean that's not going to cut it i mean it was probably a strong number when we had hundreds of thousands of people leaving the labor force every month because there weren't too many people who actually wanted jobs so we didn't have to create that many but now if seven hundred and what thirty thousand people joined the labor force in january but we only created two hundred and twenty seven thousand jobs What that means is most of the people who wanted to get a job in January still haven't found one and they're still going to be looking. Plus this is just one month. What if the same thing happens in February, March and April? We keep getting this big influx of workers in the labor market. Unless we start creating four, five, six hundred thousand jobs a month, the unemployment rate is going to continue to rise despite the fact that we continue to create jobs. Also look at wages, hourly earnings. This was the real dark blemish on this report. The consensus was that wages or average hourly earnings were going to rise by three-tenths of 1% in January. Instead, they only rose by one-tenth. But it actually gets worse because they originally told us that in December, uh, wages rose by 0.4. They just revised that down to 0.2. So between the last two months, wages actually rose by four tenths of a percent lower than what Wall Street or The Economist had been looking for. And why is this? Well, if you have all these workers now competing for jobs, that puts a lot of pressure on wages because now employers have more choices. They don't have to offer as much money to entice somebody to accept the job because you have a lot more people looking for jobs. So that's gonna keep pressure on wages. So what does this mean when it comes to the Fed? Because if we're gonna have rising unemployment and downward pressure on wages, or at least wages not rising, and we know that prices are rising. In fact, prices are already rising officially Uh, by the Fed's uh, 2% target. So that means real wages are falling quite a bit. So if we're going to have a big increase in unemployment as millions of people re-enter the labor force, now officially looking for work, and if at the same time all those people looking for work keep a lid on wages, that means the Fed now has the excuse that they've been looking for not to raise rates. Because remember, the Keynesian Phillips curvers and the Phillips cur- curve basically says that um, inflation is a function of unemployment, meaning that if you don't have a lot of unemployment, then you can have high uh, th- then you can have low inflation, but if or higher inflation, but if you have more unemployment that keeps a lid on inflation. And also the Fed believes in this wage price spiral that wages and increasing wages are what cause inflation. And of course, that's putting the cart Uh, before the horse it's the fed and its monetary policy that causes inflation and one of the results of inflation is that prices rise including the price of labor but when you have fed officials who believe that rising wages is what causes inflation and that rising unemployment will dampen inflation then what is the fed going to be able to do they're going to be able to use the increasing unemployment, and I know it's only a little bit so far, but if this is a real trend, if this is the beginning of people coming back into the labor force, then we're really gonna see a big move up in unemployment and a lot of pressure on wages. This is the perfect excuse that the Fed's been waiting for not to raise rates and to push back the expectation of when the next rate hike is coming. As a matter of fact, on Wednesday of this week, we got the Fed's decision on interest rates following their their two-day meeting and as expected they left interest rates unchanged it was unanimous but what the markets had anticipated was that the Fed would give some clarity as to when the next rate hike would come a lot of people thought well maybe in March because remember the Fed's been saying we're going to have three rate hikes in 2017 and so they got to get started if we're going to have three. And so people thought the Fed would have said something to indicate that maybe it would be March. They, they made no such comment. In fact, the probability of a March rate hike went down following that meeting. And then it went down again following the supposedly better than expected jobs report. Because I think some people are starting to figure out what this means. I mean, the reason the Fed didn't give a clue that it might be raising rates in March is because it has no intention of doing so. In fact, the Federal Reserve reiterated that increases in interest rates will be very gradual and that there will be no reduction in their balance sheet. They will continue to reinvest all maturing principal and all the interest that they receive. And so the markets are starting to figure out that the rate hikes are not coming. And in fact, look at what's happening to the dollar. Remember all the hype about how the dollar was going to go way up because the fed was going to be hiking rates and we were going to get all this fiscal stimulus and if you recall i mentioned this on uh, on my podcast quite a bit at the end of last year the most crowded trade was long the dollar and short any other currency everybody believed the dollar was going to go up just like at the end of 2015 everybody believed that gold was going to go down Short gold was what everybody was doing. And then, of course, gold had a huge rally in the first part of of 2016. Well, that's already happened to the dollar. You know, the dollar finished this week down. This was the sixth consecutive down week for the dollar. In fact, the dollar now is at better than a two-month low. But if you look at what the dollar did in January, with so many people bullish on the dollar coming into the new year, the dollar had its worst January January in 30 years. So this shows you that the markets are just beginning to sense what's really going to happen at the Fed and what's really going on at the U.S. economy. Meantime, on the other side of the Atlantic, as inflation pressures are building in the Eurozone, and as we're getting pressure on the European Central Bank from the Bundesbank, because remember, they have a hard target, right? That 2% is a ceiling in, uh, in the Eurozone. I mean, in fact, they have to keep inflation below 2%, right? They keep saying close to, but below 2%. In America, the inflation ceiling is like the debt ceiling, right? We're gonna keep on going through it, but it's more of a hard uh, ceiling in Europe. And so I think in 2017, just as the European Central Bank has to put the brakes on easing and start indicating that they're tapering or actually taper their QE and start preparing the markets for rate hikes, it's gonna be the Fed that's gonna be backtracking and actually preparing the markets for not to have rate hikes or to have fewer rate hikes and eventually rate cuts and more qe so you're going to see a complete switch in this divergent monetary policy where it's the eurozone that's going to be on the tightening path and the fed's going to be on the easing path and we can already see this meanwhile we have the weak dollar policy coming from the trump administration uh this week we had comments from trump officials specifically directed at germany claiming that they have an undervalued euro at Japan for having an undervalued yen. Of course, they've been accusing the Chinese of having an undervalued yuan. So we now really have a weak dollar policy. And you know, I think the dollar was gonna go down anyway. You know, there's an old expression. If you're being chased out of town, run to the, uh, the front of the crowd and pretend like you're leading the parade. So Trump might as well get out in front of this crowd and pretend they're leading the parade for a weaker dollar so that as the dollar comes down, uh, they can initially claim that this is some kind of victory, that it's going to help the economy, but it's actually not. What the weak dollar is going to do is it's going to, it's going to create a bigger burden on the economy. And, you know, Trump has been talking about how the trade deficits need to come down. Well, you know, the last time we had a weakening dollar, which was under President Bush, the dollar weakened considerably after uh, Bush replaced Clinton. During those years, the trade deficit increased the entire time. And in fact, we had our worst trade deficits ever as the dollar was falling. And that's because a weak dollar makes our imports more expensive. And since in many cases we have no choice but to import the products that we don't produce, if those products are more expensive to import, we just end up with an even higher trade deficit. So I think the trade deficits were going up. I think the budget deficits are going up, certainly to the extent that we get some tax cuts. We continue to get more government spending. If we get more government spending under Trump on the military, on the the border, on infrastructure, rising trade deficits, rising budget deficits, uh, rising inflation, all of this is going to be a big negative for the dollar. And of course, everybody was so loaded up long the dollar. I think the people who own the dollar, there's a lot of dollar selling that's coming. And I think the dollar bulls are going to end up losing a lot of money. In fact, I think one of the reasons that we didn't have an even bigger uh, drop in the dollar on Friday was because of the 186 point rally in the Dow Jones, you know, the Dow Jones back above 20,000 and everybody is celebrating Dow 20,000. And you know, despite all this celebration, the Dow was barely gained in the year 2017. So all of the move up, there was about a 10% move up in the Dow following uh, the the, the, uh, Trump victory. But since the beginning of this year, the Dow was barely up more than 1%. You know, you can contrast that to the price of gold, which is up 6% so far uh, this year. Look at gold stocks. Gold stocks are up 17% as a group so far in 2017, 17%. Everybody's talking about the Dow. No one's talking about gold stocks. In fact, gold stocks were the number one performing Uh, Sector last year by far wasn't even close and they're already by far the number one performing sector this year But nobody really wants to talk about it And if you look at what was driving uh, the Dow yesterday, I think the big news had to do with the financials We had a big rise in the banks the brokerage firms because Trump on Friday signed a bill to number one they're going to reassess a lot of the regulations from Dodd-Frank and maybe and hopefully quite a bit of the Dodd-Frank legislation is going to be reversed. And what Trump also did is he delayed, I think indefinitely, the April uh, implementation of the Labor Department fiduciary rule. And both the fiduciary rule and Dodd-Frank are negatives for the financials, and so the fact that they may not happen uh, helped to rally the market. And I think that took some of the, uh, the steam out of a gold rally or a dollar decline that might otherwise have taken place. but I think we're going to see a resumption of the of the uh, dollar decline and gold rally next next week. But I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the executive order that Donald Trump signed on you know trying to unravel some of these Obama administration regulations. I mean, first of all, it's definitely a good thing, right, that we need to remove some of these regulations. Dodd-Frank, first of all, was a bad uh, bill. It came out in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and the government was going to fix the problem to make sure that we didn't have another financial crisis. And the ultimate irony is that uh, Senators, uh, 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 Chris Dodd and, and Congressman Barney Frank, They were two of the key players that created the conditions that led to uh, the financial crisis. They did that by protecting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from any congressional efforts to rein them in. They were the biggest cheerleaders uh, for these government-sponsored enterprises. And what really caused the financial crisis was not the greed on Wall Street or misbehavior on Wall Street, not that that didn't happen, but it was the Federal Reserve under, under Alan Greenspan, and the reckless monetary policy that compared to what's happened under Bernanke and Yellen wasn't reckless at all, but by the standards at the time it certainly was, and by keeping rates at 1% as long as he did and taking so long to raise them back, He inflated the housing bubble and that was exacerbated by the moral hazards and government guarantees of Fannie and Freddie, not only because they were guaranteeing mortgages, but because they became the largest buyers of subprime mortgages, helping to validate that market and and, and prop it up. And also you had other ways the government interfered in the banking system, such as government insured bank accounts so that nobody cared how much risks the bank took and the bank had no uh, market pressures not to engage in risky activity. So it was the government. And if you remember. Back in the day when George Bush was talking about how Wall Street got drunk, and that was why we had a financial crisis, I always said, yes, Bush was right. Wall Street got drunk, but he's not talking about how they got drunk. Where did they get all the alcohol? And I said it was uh, Alan Greenspan, that he was the bartender, and he liquored everybody up. And the fact that Wall Street was so drunk because of the Fed, and they did reckless, irresponsible things, well, what do you expect? That's what you do when you're drunk. But the problem isn't that Wall Street got drunk, it's that the Fed poured the alcohol. And so um, Congress decided that no, it was the free market that caused the crisis, and so what would prevent another one would be more government interference in the free market, more government regulation. And of course, that is not the case. In fact, in many cases, We have exacerbated the very problems as a result of Dodd-Frank. And another financial crisis is, of course, inevitable. And when it happens, it's going to be worse than the last one. What's scary about the potential of some deregulation now is I can already hear the left using this as the scapegoat, blaming the next financial crisis on whatever marginal deregulation we happen to have under Donald Trump. They'll be saying, oh, you see, everything was great. And then look, we had this deregulation and you know, we have another financial crisis. In fact, they're already putting that spin on the jobs numbers. I read a lot of articles on how this January jobs report shows that President Trump was handed this great economy, this great jobs market. Meanwhile, as all the people who left the labor force under Obama try to come back in under Trump and now the unemployment rate rises for no fault of Donald Trump's. Of course, Donald Trump is going to get the blame. Oh, look, look at this unemployment rate coming up now that we have president Trump. But I also want to talk more about this fiduciary rule that is now being suspended. And you know, the way the media is reporting this, right? Because the, the government advertisement on this fiduciary rule, is that it requires brokers to put their customers' interests first, right? So that's a good thing, right? Who could be against brokers putting their customers' interests first? So now the way the left is spinning this is, okay, so now uh, Trump is not going to implement this. And this is a sad day for investors because now the brokers can keep on screwing them over, right? They don't have to do what's right for their customers. They can keep on just making money for themselves. And like most things in government, Whenever they have legislation, right, because there's no truth in legislating, like there's truth in advertisement. Whenever the government says something, right, whatever the purpose of a regulation is, the result is the opposite of that expressed purpose. Like if they pass tax simplification, right, the result is that taxes get a lot more complicated. But, you know, nobody wants to vote for tax complication complication. But everybody wants to vote for simplification. So they take a bill that complicates taxes and they label it simplification so that it can get support. I mean, look at the Patriot Act. Could you imagine a more unpatriotic act than the Patriot Act? But, you know, they labeled it the Patriot Act because who wants to be unpatriotic, right? So everybody supports it. So the same thing with this fiduciary rule. They're saying that this forces brokers to put their client interest first. I think the effect will be the opposite. I think it would have forced brokers to set aside their client interest and put their own interest first. Now, first of all, this, the concept that we need the government to force brokers uh, to put their client interest first. Why? I mean, all businesses put the customer first, right? That's the rule. The customer is always right. Why is the customer right? Why does everybody want to satisfy the customer? Because there's competition. If you don't satisfy your customers somebody else will and you'll lose your customers the same thing applies to the brokerage industry i mean first of all i want to put my clients interests first for a couple of reasons one just because of my own moral compass i mean i want to do the right thing and i don't think i'm unique i think most people in the financial services industry want to do what's right for their customers and believe they're doing what's right for their customers even if they're not They're at least sincere. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some people that cut corners. That's true in every industry. But generally, those people don't succeed very much. They don't have as many clients as the brokers that do a better job and really treat their customers right, which is the other reason that I want to treat my customers right is because I don't want to lose them. I want to get additional customers. So I'm forced, not by government law, but by free market competition, I'm forced to do the right thing about my customers. I don't need a government rule to require me to do what I'm going to do anyway. But what end, what would have happened as a result of this fiduciary rule is it would have substantially increased the costs of uh, servicing retirement accounts, IRAs, to the point that a lot of brokerage firms were going to raise their minimum so high for IRAs that a lot of investors, smaller investors, wouldn't even have the ability to seek out any professional help when it comes to their IRAs. They would have to do it all themselves. But to the extent that you could sub- you know deposit enough money so that you can meet the minimum what the law was going to do was force brokers to basically put their clients into the lowest cost uh, funds or strategies where you pretty much just replicated whatever the markets were going to do right there was going to be no room for actual thought right it wasn't that you could try to decide what you think should be done if you think certain sectors are overvalued or undervalued if you think the market is a bubble if you think uh, you know that stocks that people that, that, that a lot of people are buying are too expensive right. You couldn't actually use your mind because if you did and in the short run your strategy underperformed you were liable uh, for a lawsuit. I mean the fiduciary rule would have made it much easier for clients to sue their brokers if temporarily the strategy that they put them into underperformed some lower cost benchmark. And generally, where you have people thinking and people trying to do the right thing, that is more expensive than when you just mindlessly buy the indexes. You just follow the crowd and do what everybody else is doing. That's the easiest thing to do, and so that's going to have the lowest cost. And so what I think was going to happen throughout the broker's industry is it was all going to be about defensive advising, just like a lot of doctors would uh, practice defensive medicine and maybe do a lot of unnecessary tests so they don't get sued. I think everybody would be funneled into the same uh, low-cost index-type strategies, which are destined to fail because I mean the markets are way overvalued and they're going to go down. And you know if you're a broker and you actually believe the markets are overvalued and you want to advise a different strategy. You would really be precluded from doing that had this rule got into effect. But, you know, if you go back and look at all of the regulation, because I would like to see the Trump administration not just look at Dodd Frank, but go back to Bush, you know, look at the Patriot Act, you know, get rid of that. Or how about get rid of all of this regulation in the securities industry, get rid of uh, the SEC or get rid of FINRA or substantially roll back what they do, because everything they do has the effect of minimizing competition, driving up costs, uh, minimizing freedom of choice. I mean, why shouldn't Americans be free to choose uh, how they want to invest? Why do we need the government to interfere with the relationship between a client and the broker? Why does the government have to say, these are the type of investments you can buy, these are the type of investments you can't, this is how your retirement account has to be invested. Look, if you're smart enough to save for your retirement, you should be smart enough uh, to come to your own conclusions on how you want that money invested. The irony of it is that all this government regulation has backfired. I mean, a lot of the regulation is designed to protect the little guy, right? To make sure the little guy doesn't get screwed over by greedy, uh, wall street uh, brokers. But the reality is, the government has made it so difficult and so expensive now to work with the little guy that nobody will that all the firms have minimums that are so high that the little guy is basically shut out. I mean, let's say you have $5,000 and you want to start investing. Nobody's going to help you. Nobody can afford to help you because you cannot charge a client enough money on a $5,000 account to cover the compliance costs or the risks associated with having that client. So what happens to this guy? He's out on his own. He's got to do it all by himself. He's got to figure out where to invest the money. He doesn't have any real experience or knowledge, and he's easily influenced uh, by a lot of hype. And they're also very vulnerable to scams. They can fall victim to a pump-and-dump scheme or a Ponzi scheme. So as a result of the government trying to protect the little guy uh, from criminals on Wall Street, he ends up being victimized and robbed blind uh, by uh, criminals who aren't on Wall Street. Because all of the quality reputable firms are regulated and licensed, and so they can't afford to deal with the small guy. The people who can afford to deal with the small guy are the people who are going to rip them off. So the reality is a lot more people get ripped off because of all the government protections. And in addition, if you look at the cost of complying with all these rules and regulations, who do you think pays those costs? It's all built into the fees and the commissions that Wall Street charges. And in fact, if we didn't have all these rules and regulations that, in my opinion, do nothing to actually protect clients, if we didn't have them, the savings to investors would be more than anybody could have possibly stolen. Right? We lose more investors, lose more to the cost of regulations than they would have lost to criminals uh, had we not had all this regulation supposedly to protect the public from the criminals on Wall Street. Meanwhile, the regulators spend all of their time policing the honest brokers. Right? The guys that are working within the regulated environment, they have to deal with the SEC, they have to deal with FINRA, and the cops on the beat spend all their time uh, harassing people who are generally trying to do the right thing. Again, they're not all giving out what I believe to be good advice, but I believe most of it is sincere. Certainly on the financial advisor level, uh, the, the, uh, the reps who have personal relationships with their customers, they want to do what's right for their customers. Now, maybe. What they're doing is wrong because they're they're getting bad advice from people higher up in their firm and they believe a lot of this nonsense, but the vast majority of them are sincere. But what happens is the government spends all their time policing these honest individuals and there's nobody policing the actual crooks because there are people out there who are unscrupulous, who will defraud people, but since they're not operating under the regulatory scrutiny, uh, nobody is even looking at them and and they're free to run roughshod. So if the government got rid of all this regulation and actually policed legitimate financial crime, that would be a good thing. It is free market competition, not government regulation that protects consumers. And ironically, as a result of all of the government rules and regulations that are in theory designed to protect consumers, there is a lot less competition in the brokerage industry and therefore consumers have fewer choices and less real protection. You know, as an example, I started my brokerage firm, Euro Pacific Capital, back in the mid-1990s. And it's not like there were no rules and regulation back then because there certainly were plenty. But if the volume of rules and regulations that exist today existed back then, there is no way I could ever have started my company. And you know, that's the way the big firms want it. You know, there is a cozy relationship between the larger firms and the regulators that oversee the entire industry because all the rules and regulations act as a barrier to entry, to inhibit competition. You know, when you're a large firm, there are economies of scale. And so the bigger you are, the more easily it is to absorb the burden of complying with all the rules and regulations. But when you're a small firm and you have to comply with the same rules and regulations as much larger firms, you don't have the economies of scale. And that's why so few people start brokerage firms today. And that's why over the last several years, so many smaller firms have gone out of business because they cannot afford to survive with the extra burdens imposed by all the rules and regulations. So if we didn't have all these rules and regulations from FINRA and the SEC, then far more people would be able to start brokerage firms. We would have a much uh, more vibrant market for ideas and strategies. Consumers would have a lot more choice among uh, a, a bigger uh, supply of financial professionals who can offer different strategies and different opinions you would have lots of competition a robust market and I think more people would get better advice and there would be fewer people being ripped off but again as is always the case with government regulation the opposite of their intended purpose is what is actually uh, the consequence of the regulation so hopefully we will get Uh, more deregulation under uh, President Trump. But I hope it doesn't just stop with Dodd-Frank. I hope they go a lot further and they go back further in time and they unravel a lot of the rules and regulations that came in under the Bush administration and then those rules and regulations that predate Bush. Well, that's it for now. And, you know, make sure to tune in and listen to my podcast. I do my podcasts Far more frequently than I do these video blogs. I try to make a point of at least doing two a week. Sometimes I do more. You can listen to my podcast on my um, YouTube channel, Shift Report, as well as on my website, shiftradio.com. Bye for now.
2: Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Europacific Bank at europacbank.com. Pacific Capital and Euro Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.
0: Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals.